Light to the Nations is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Give, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. Hello and welcome to episode 8 of A Light to the Nations. I'm your host, Father Fred Shaheen. Psalm 78 not only retells the story of biblical Israel, but in the opening verses, which we just heard, it lays out Scripture's teaching method. The hearer is invited to open his ears and hear the words of instruction from the Lord. This instruction is given in the form of parables and dark sayings of old. We know that parable, in Hebrew mashal, is a teaching story. The other word translated as dark sayings is hidot. A different way to render hidot might be an enigma or a riddle, something that teases, that invites the hearer to engage it in order to understand the meaning. As with parables, too, the meaning isn't totally hidden, but it does require effort on the part of the one hearing. He is not being spoon-fed, but rather, as Jesus affirms in the New Testament, he needs ears to hear in order to hear or understand the teaching. In the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the use of parables to teach is widespread. When we hear the parable of the sower early on in Mark, we hear strikingly the parable itself, followed directly by the explanation by Jesus to the disciples of its meaning. In comparison, the Gospel of John, in which Jesus doesn't teach in parables per se, can be more difficult to grasp. On the surface, just hearing the story, we might think we can tell what's going on, but often the real meat of the teaching is found in the small details that draw us in. An example of a seemingly straightforward narrative that has a deeper meaning embedded in the details is the first part of the last chapter of John, which relates a post-resurrection appearance by Jesus. It begins by saying that Jesus showed himself again to the disciples, and it states this twice, and it ends by reiterating the same thing even more emphatically, stressing that this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. In between that first statement, which is doubled for emphasis, and the last one, we hear the full account in which Jesus meets the disciples gives them instructions, and then shares with them a common meal. Let's hear the text. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and in this way he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We are going with you also. They went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? 
They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about two hundred cubits, dragging the net with fish. Then, as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land, full of large fish, one hundred and fifty-three. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, Come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. That's John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. There are indeed a number of enticing details in this passage which aren't there simply for the purpose of relaying information. First, only some of the disciples who were together are named, but not all of them. We hear that it was Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. It's curious that the author of John would name only three of them. It's not so strange that he would include himself in the third person, along with his brother James, one of the sons of Zebedee. But why stop after the five and then say, and two others? It was important for the author not to let us know who all was there, but for him to tell us that there were seven. Why seven? We'll get to that in a moment, but for now, let's recall that numbers can have symbolic value in the Bible, and that seven represents divine fullness. The first ones named here all have a function. Although he earlier denied Jesus three times, Simon Peter is the chief disciple. As a pillar of the church in Jerusalem, it is he who initiates the action which the others follow. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you also. And as one who vacillated on the position of including Gentiles as full equals in the Messianic community, it is fitting that it is he who does Jesus' bidding to bring here some of the fish that you have just caught so they could eat together. Full parity between Jews and non-Jews is something that could be demonstrated or tested by table fellowship, thus the sharing of a meal. And here, it's not just any meal, but one that specifically includes fish that had already been prepared ahead of time. The disciples see the fish lying on coals when they come to shore, along with the multitude of fish that had just been caught at Jesus' command. Next, we have Thomas, the one who, in the previous chapter, wasn't there the first time Jesus appeared after his resurrection and who doubted that the others saw him. The Lord granted them the second appearance that enabled Thomas, just like the ten, the opportunity to see and believe. 
Also mentioned specifically are the two sons of Zebedee, one of whom is John, the author of the gospel. Significantly, it is he, identified as the disciple whom Jesus loved, who recognizes Jesus first and reports to Simon Peter that it is the Lord. His inclusion here can be understood as necessary, since he will assert at the end of this concluding chapter that he himself testifies of these things, and it is he who writes them, and that his testimony is true. At the end of chapter 19, the author had made a similar claim, adding also that he has seen all the things of which he testifies. And at the center of the first five mentioned here is Nathaniel. Nathaniel's appearance in the first and last chapters of John's Gospel form what scholars call a literary inclusio, meaning the entire episode is bracketed by them. It's also fitting that Nathaniel would be present in this episode of Jesus showing himself after his resurrection. We recall that in chapter 1 of John, Jesus had assured him, you will see greater things than these. Nathaniel's name means gift of God, and thus he functions as a prototypical Jew, one who has received the gift or grace of the Torah. This is corroborated by Jesus telling him that he saw him when he was under the fig tree, which is a symbol of the scriptural Israel. Further, Jesus says he saw Nathanael before Philip called him, which corresponds to the pattern of calling outlined by Paul in Romans. Jews are first because of their election by God, but if they refuse, they must follow others who are also being called. Let's hear St. Paul. I say then, have they, meaning Israel, stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now if their fall is riches for the world, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? That's Romans chapter 11, verses 11 and 12. This is why Jesus says to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Although Nathanael had already been seen by Jesus, he is called in this case evangelized, by Philip, the one with a Greek name, thus representative of the Gentiles. His further identification as being of Cana in Galilee fits perfectly with this interpretation. Cana could be a stand-in for Canaan, the earth of God's promise to biblical Israel. Nathaniel's position, then, is one who had refused and is now invited to come and see alongside and at the express call of his Gentile-slash-Greek cohort, Philip. The addition of in Galilee only reinforces Nathanael's status as one like Jesus himself, who is coming in from the outside of Judea and Jerusalem. We now see the function of his being not only present for this third appearance of the risen Lord, but being named in the middle, a device to draw our attention of the five who are mentioned specifically. And then we get another literary device, the oblique mention of and to others without anything more specific. As we said earlier, what was important for the author was not so much to tell us who all was there, but that there were in fact seven of them. The disciples' action of fishing in the sea, more specifically of casting their net on the right side of the boat at Jesus' command, 
represents the drawing in of people from all backgrounds, Jews and Gentiles, to hear and accept the gospel. The second part of verse 6 describes what happened when the disciples did exactly what Jesus bid them to do. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. A few verses later, when Peter hauls the net ashore at Jesus' command, we are told that the net was full of large fish, 153 of them to be precise, and that although there were so many, the net was not torn. So we know that the number of fish brought in was great, but not excessive. That's why, despite the size of the catch, the net is still intact. But what about 153? What's the significance of that specific number here? To solve the riddle, let's go to a much earlier part of the scriptural story. And since this passage in John stresses the inclusion of Gentiles in the Messianic community, Genesis chapter 17, dealing with the covenant of circumcision, would be a pertinent reference. There, not only is Abraham invited into the covenant with God, but along with him, as it says, every male child who is among you. Let's hear verses 12 and 13 of Genesis 17. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. The text here goes out of its way to emphasize inclusiveness when it comes to Abraham's children in the covenant arrangement. Additionally, between verse 10 and 14, child is repeated four times. John's grounding in the covenant of circumcision may account for Jesus' unexpected address to the disciples in this part of the gospel as children. Furthermore, in Genesis 17, the phrase multitude of nations appears in verse 5 and is repeated in verse 6. We have already mentioned numbers having symbolic value. In Hebrew, letters also carry numeric value. The phrase multitude of nations rendered in Hebrew has a consonantal value of 160. And this is where we need to go back and remember that earlier the author insisted on telling us that there were seven disciples present. If we add those seven to the 153 fish that were brought ashore, we arrive at 160, a totality that includes Jews at the core, those seven disciples, as well as a large hall of Gentiles brought in to join them. So at the end of the fourth gospel, what we have is a literary depiction of Paul's teaching in the letter to the Romans regarding the salvation of all Israel. Branches of a wild olive tree, the large but not excessive hall of fish, being grafted in to be joined to the branches that were broken off, the ones already on the coal alongside the bread, and that bread is the teaching, and along with them becoming partakers of the root and fatness of the olive tree, the one community of the vindicated Messiah, Jesus raised from the dead, sharing with him in a common meal at the one table. As in the covenant of circumcision, to be counted as children, the requirement of all is submission to the will of God. Finally, let us be reminded of Paul's caveat in Romans 11, 
verses 18 to 22, which is addressed to the wild branches. Do not boast against the branches, but if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. This concludes Episode 8 of A Light to the Nations. I look forward to meeting again soon. Thank you for listening.